You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. We've all noticed it. When some people speak, others listen. They're engaged, convinced, ready to act. While others, when they speak, the audience is bored, restless, unimpressed. So what's the difference? What sort of impact does being a powerful speaker have on our relationships, our careers, our life? Welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're going to explore the cross-section of communication and leadership. My guest is Shane Hatton, communication guru, author, and interesting chap. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Shane Hatton, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. Look, Shane, it's a real pleasure to have you. We just had a bit of a chat online. We had a bit of a chat before we started this, and we had a chat online today. You actually happened to ping me today while I was reading your book. I'll tell you what, mate, it's an excellent book. I have a lot of people on this podcast every two weeks for however many years, and I get a lot of books come my way, and I'm, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me the different angles from which people can come at this leadership thing. And the, the other thing that amazes me is when I'm presented with these angles, they're perfectly reasonable and sound, and they make great sense, and I wonder, why haven't we been talking about this before? Yours is one of those books. You talk about that relationship between leadership and communication. It's a really obvious one, but I love the way you tease it out in your book and you give some really great tangible advice. So that's where we're going to go in this conversation. Tell us, Shane, at the beginning of all of this, explain what is the relationship between leadership and communication? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thanks so much for the kind words. It's always encouraging when you write something and put it out into the world to yeah. think that people read it and get something valuable from it. Are they going to like um, it? That's always a compliment. Yeah. Will they like it? Will they get something <laughs> useful from it? Right. And so it's always nice to hear that, that encouragement. Hey, by the way, you, may, you, you write nicely. Yeah. Have you always been a handy writer? Has it always been in your skill set? I don't think it, maybe not intentionally. I, I probably have mm. written and I, I, I did develop a bit of a habit over the last couple of years to write weekly. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of the, I think the process of time uh, definitely helps sharpen and refine the writing. I think I've still got a long way to go, but I think yeah. definitely the practice over time helps refine the uh, no, writing it's, style. It's great, great tone, mate, and very neat and tidy. But anyway, I cut you off. You're about to answer my question. I, I'm good at cutting my guests off. That's one of the habits <laughs> I've developed through my podcasting career. So I apologize in advance. Tell me about that relationship between leadership and communication. Yeah, I think when I was looking at this idea of, of communication, we often go straight to the idea of, you know, it's public speaking and it's always around presentation skills and it's training people to become better presenters. And I think I zoomed out on the perspective of that and thought to myself, actually, we don't need better speakers. We don't need more great keynote speakers. The world needs better and more effective leaders. And so I was going, how can I approach this through the perspective of leadership? Because the reality is every time you stand in front of a room, whether it's um, to a, a small handful of people on your team, whether it's to the broader, the org or broader organization, it's an opportunity to lead people. So how do we approach communication through that lens of this is an opportunity to lead the room? Look, this is something that I have seen so many times through my career go either way. I see people who just blow that moment time and time again where they are in some kind of position of hierarchical authority. They have a, 
They have a role in the organization that people look to them. They stand in front of their peers or or a group, a team of three or four or a, or a department of 30 or an organization of 100, and they just fluff the chance to make an impact. And you see it. You see people disengage. You see people looking and maybe kind of listening through a sense of, I have to do this, a, a sense of duty. And then I see the other yeah. side of things where there's almost these people, it's, it's like people who get this, they get this. They understand that when they stand in front of a group or communicate with a small number of people or a huge audience, they understand that they're not making a speech. They're not perfecting their keynote speaking or their presentation skills. They are engaging with human beings and they're taking this opportunity to enhance their profile as your leader. And there's there's in between, but those two kind mm. of figures I see over and over, and I love the latter. I love being in a room when someone with humility and empathy and understanding owns the room. They take charge yeah. and they, they take this as their moment to be a leader. And then, so I, like I said, those people get it. But yeah. the people who fluff it, the people who are weak as water and don't take that chance and don't lead their people- <laughs> I wonder, do they get it too, but they're just not stepping up? They're just giving themselves an excuse. They're letting themselves off the hook. What are those people thinking? Yeah, you you touched on it beautifully in, in what, when you were just asking that question then around it's a really human way to connect with people, right? And I was reading a book from maybe the 1940s, an old um, Dale Carnegie book on public speaking. And he likened public speakers to people who were like artists and scientists and poets and they yeah, were masterful the in the way they communicate, right? And you see people that are like that, but most presentations that you see or most presentations you have to sit through now, you wouldn't liken them to that. And I think there's this uh, this approach where you either an op- you see it as an opportunity to build your leadership platform or yeah. it, without even knowing, you can be undermining and burning that leadership platform. There's a great quote by James C. Humes that says, every time you stand up to speak in public, you're auditioning for leadership. And yeah. I think part of it is, is the mindset shift that says, hey, this is not just a moment to speak. This is an opportunity to lead. And I think yeah. it's that really distinct shift we've got to make in our mind that says, no, nah, this is an opportunity to lead. So in your experience working with people in organizations, those who stand up and, as I say, fluff it, which is probably not very kind, but we know it. <laughs> we've all been in that situation and we've all seen we've all had one that individual do it over and over again, fluff multiple opportunities to be a leader but their role puts them in that place over and over again. What are those people telling themselves? How are they letting themselves off the hook? Because we all experience the good side, so they must know that they're they're not offering something. Yeah. I think there's two groups of people that you're touching on here. The first group of people are the people who want to do well, but just genuinely get in their own way. And so the stories that they're telling themselves in their head is that I can't make a mistake. I can't stuff this up. And so the pressure almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you tell yourself, don't make a mistake, and then you make a mistake, you beat yourself up and you're essentially doing what's inevitable because we all make mistakes, right? So there's that group of people who they want to do well, but potentially they get in their own way. Or there's the other group of people who genuinely think they're doing well. And what I hear most of the audiences and their teams say is, I just felt like they came in and spoke at me rather than communicated with me. Mm. And that's the big distinct. And, and most of the time, people who communicate or speak at people think that they're doing a really good job. So it's about defining which of those two groups do you fall into? Well, 
I love those two categories that you've got there, but I, I do feel as though there's a third. So you talk about people who get in their own way. They want to be good, but their anxiety stops them and it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm really nervous about being terrible. So because I'm so nervous, I'm going to be terrible. We've seen that. Because I'm so nervous, I'm going to forget the value of what I'm trying to add. And I'm trying to repeat lines that I've learned and written down and I miss the essence of my message. We all see that. And I always say when I talk to people, people will feel sorry for you and, and empathize with you for a few minutes. But after that, you lose them. Because if you're nervous and stumbling and, and clearly giving a superficial brush over of what you really wanted to say, the audience will just disengage no matter how much sympathy or empathy they had for you at the start. So that's the first group you described. They get in their own way. And then the second group is they think they're doing well. So these are these I don't know, maybe a little on the arrogant side or maybe a little on the selfish side or a little narrow viewed. They think that if Sometimes I stand just up unaware. here and, Yeah, unaware. If I stand up here and just say it, then it's your responsibility to hear it. If the words come out of my mouth, no matter how poorly or how boringly, then I've done my side of communication. And we know communicators like that. But what about this ghost third group who I think exist where they're not anxious. They're not trying to, you know, they don't want to be better and just getting in their own way. They don't think they're doing a good job. They know that there's something missing, but they just let themselves off the hook because it's too hard. Yeah. I think it's, it's a big issue of priority, right? And yeah. it's not understanding that this opportunity to communicate to my team or to my organization isn't just a chance to get, you know, our latest news across of what's happening within the organization. It's a chance to create culture. It's a chance to cast a compelling vision. It's a chance to make sense of things that, you know, we need to make sense of within the organization. They're all these incredible moments that we have to actually achieve something really significant yeah. for your team, if your organization, and also to build your leadership platform. And in a way that helps inspire trust and mobilizes people, I think one of the big shifts I've seen is that transition between when you're in mid-level management, you probably need to know presentation skills because your primary role is communicating information to your team and to your mm. organization. Then there's this moment where you step up from that kind of mid-level manager to role to becoming a leader almost of mm. other leaders. And it's yeah. not presentation skills anymore. It's not information dissemination. It's actually about how do I mobilize people and communicate in a way that creates real change in the organization? Yeah, that's a really good point. All right. Now, one of the things that you talk about quite early in your book is this magnificent story about the first marathon you ever ran. Give us a version of that and then tell us how does this lead into the, that brilliant concept of process and practice, which you you make so clear to your readers. Yeah. So I, I ran the Paris Marathon in uh, 2013 and I look for any opportunity that I have, regardless of context, to tell that story, mostly because I ran the marathon in Paris yeah, in 2013. Proud. That's great. I'm, I'm, it's a great I'm story. Proud. It seems like a really great story because it's kind of looking back at it. But at the moment, I was sitting at home, my wife looks at me and we're, we're eating dinner in front of the TV and, and hopefully no one judges us for that. That's just, we you know, that was our space and we all do it, right? She looks at me and she kind of has this look in her eyes and, and we've been married now for 11 years. So, I kind of know she wants to talk about something. She looks at me you and says, hey, I've got this idea. I know the look, right? So, she looks at me and says, I think we should go to Paris and run the marathon. Now, that would inspire most people, right? But she's thinking beautiful cobblestone streets of Paris running past the Eiffel Tower, 
my brain goes straight to all the YouTube videos I've watched of people who are like soiling themselves while they're, you know, running down the final. <laughs> Those great you know. moments in marathon running. Exactly. So I'm I'm imagining getting myself stretched off, right? And so the immediate thing that goes through my head is two questions. Well, first of all, the first question is, I've never run a marathon before. Where do you even start? Like, do I just get outside and just run, you know, 20 or 30 Ks? Like, I don't know. Where do you start? Like, is, is a kilometer enough? First session, 30 Ks. <laughs> first session, 30 Ks. <laughs> I, I don't know. Where do you start? And then the second thing yeah. is I, I look at myself and I go, well, I'm not really a runner. Like, it's not my, not my, I wasn't, wasn't born, you know, a natural athlete. And the the physique that I have is really just the results of poor lifestyle choices. So, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at myself going, I don't know how to do that. And so, I call my dad who who runs marathons and I just said to him, I don't know Handy. what to do. Handy, right? It's nice to have someone in the family. And so, he sends me an Excel spreadsheet and all it has is a date and a time. And he says, I want you to, on the date, go for a run for this amount of time. And so, of course, I'm confused because I'm looking at it going, there's no distance on here, Where's right? The distance, yeah. How far am I supposed to run? He said, all I want you to do is trust the process. Get out there on the road and start running. And I remember those two pieces of advice. And I realized that most people, when it comes to public speaking, have this, this fear. The, the first thing is, I'm not a public speaker, right? Yeah. It's that sense of yeah. confidence. I'm not really sure I've got the confidence for this. Or the other reason is, I'm not really sure where to start. Like, how do I do that? And there's this kind of lack of clarity and going, I don't really know how do I turn all my thoughts that are going on in my head into words and actually communicate them in a way that makes sense. And then the same, it's this kind of parallel to the story of the marathon. So, what I learned is the the cure for confidence, the lack of confidence that I had was just to get out the road and start running, just to get out there and practice, right? Yeah. And the yeah. same way with public speaking, the only way you get better is by getting out there and practicing. And then the other side of it, the this lack of clarity of where do I even start? Sometimes all you just need is a really good process. And so, I find the combination of process and practice is a really great combination to do something that you maybe never thought you would be able to do. So that's what I did. Hey, up up to that moment when your wife hit you with this dream of running the Paris Marathon, which was with your dad, by the way, which is really nice. He was going to do it and your wife wanted to tag along. That's really nice. How far had you run up to that point? What was your longest ever run? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe three kilometers. I don't oh, know. Wow. probably be about as so far as I'd run. more than multiplying it by 10. Yeah. I mean, it's 42 kilometers. That's a long way to run. And five and a half hours it took us to run. 41.195, which I learned from your I, book. I always thought- I it was like 40, to round up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that everyone does. I didn't know that until I read your book, 0.195. All right. It's that's kind of an unusual story. distance, right? Well, it's, isn't it the difference between Athens and Marathon? There's a, it was in the first Olympics. There's a, a run from Athens to a town called Marathon. Well, that's, and that's you exactly teaching me. Distance. Yeah, well, I'm going to add so, that to the revision. Uh, well, you might want to Google it first, but it, I'm pretty sure that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into this idea of process and practice or practice and process. We're going to get to process soon, and we're going to get you to give away your wisdom all about that. And I love your three obsessions, but tell me about practice. So when listeners hear the rest of this podcast and they take all your wonderful advice, how on earth do I, as an aspiring speaker, a leader, someone who wants to engage my audience every time I get a chance, where do I find the opportunities to practice this stuff? Mm, that's a good question. And I reckon it's as simple as saying yes to everything, any yeah. opportunity that you have, right? So, the opportunity may not look like in your organization speaking to a team. It may look like that. It may just look like, hey, we've got you know, Nana's 75th birthday and we need to get somebody up to say it, you know, to say a toast. You know, we've got such and such as, you know, first birthday. Why don't you get up and just talk to the family? 
they mm-hmm. may seem like really insignificant events, but every moment you have that you're standing face-to-face with a crowd is a chance to interact and learn how to get more confident standing in front of a crowd. So I say, say yes to everything. Someone wants you to go and, and host an event and an awards ceremony. I remember hosting a, a hair fashion show when I was in university, Great. thinking to myself, why am I doing this? Why am I even <laughs> here? But I now learn the skills in the process of that. So I just say, say yes to everything. Is it also partly this? So if even those Nana's 75th birthday, even that's a little structured. You've got to wait for those opportunities to come around, but, but there's certainly your scope there to pounce more often on opportunities like that. I, I completely accept that. And I think mm. that it, it is our default, unless you're a really confident public speaker, it is our default to shy away from those situations. So I get that, accept mm. that. But I also see this other opportunity, and it's in those everyday meetings and conversations that you have with colleagues at work, where you have the chance to treat all of the things that you say as a moment of leadership. Now, you might still just sit in your chair, and you might just be one of six or eight or 12 people who speak during that meeting. But if you're telling yourself that, hey, what I'm doing here is practicing these skills, learning this process, being convincing, getting people on board diving in to how this audience is feeling and what their concerns are, if you're thinking really clearly about that and you're not just sprouting off in a meeting saying whatever comes to your head, you're almost putting yourself under pressure to perform really well here and and take this moment, then I think mm. a lot of those opportunities pop up every day in our in our work. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, you know when you go shopping, it's that whole experiment where if you go shopping for a red, you know, Volkswagen, you've never seen the car before, then all of a sudden you see it everywhere on the road, right? So it's the same. If you make the decision, I'm going to invest in this and practice this, I reckon what you said Mm. is you'll notice those moments throughout the day going, hey, here's an opportunity to practice. And I think I often say to people, there's a big difference between saying something and having something valuable to say. And the big differentiator here is to ask yourself, okay, if I was going to say something really valuable in this moment, what would that be and how would I say it? And so kind of reflecting in those key moments. You know, Another challenge to our listeners, we've had a number of podcasts on this show about bad meetings. Here's a challenge. Next time you're in a bad meeting that you think is going off the rails, is lacking purpose and direction and and decisions and all of those things that meetings have to have or it's going on too long, here's your challenge. Take that moment to be a leader verbally, to lead the room, even if you're not the boss of the meeting. Because everyone in the meeting will appreciate someone taking charge and giving this thing some shape. And in order to do that, without looking like a, I can't think of a word that's not a swear word, without looking like a (laughs) douchebag, you have to tap in to the feelings of the people in the room to do it with empathy and to do it with a little bit of charisma and style. That's a really great challenge. And we all know that those opportunities to take control of meetings that need someone to take control of them pop up all the time. The challenge is to take those opportunities and be that person. And I say, if you do that for six months, watch your career progress. Watch the Mm. people around you look to you as a leader. You might not be a manager, but they'll look to you as a leader. And that's a really powerful thing. So that's my challenge to listeners who are listening to us through this podcast. I think it's a a good one because there's so many opportunities for that. Oh, it's fantastic. I I would add to that. And sometimes it's not just about saying something in the room as a statement. Sometimes it's about being really intentional by asking a great question. Mm, You know, you notice the meeting is getting off track and people are getting, you know, and so sometimes the most powerful question is, hey, what would be the best next step from here? 
And one question can reshape and reframe an entire conversation. So yeah, I would say find opportunities to say something and also find opportunities to ask really powerful questions. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. All right, we're talking to Shane Hatton, who is the author of a fabulous book called Lead the Room. We're talking about that relationship between leadership and communication. We've talked about when it looks great and when it looks horrible and everything in between. You've talked about process and practice. Let's get to the really good stuff now, Shane. You talk in your book about the three obsessions. Tell us what those three obsessions are. Who is obsessed with these things and how can I in a really tangible way, take on this wisdom and make a difference in my professional conduct or just the way I conduct myself as a human being. Yeah. Obsession is such a funny word to use, isn't it? I even questioned using that in the book. And I think I even talk about it in the book. It you seems do. like such yeah. a strange word to use, but it's I don't use on. obsession. It's so full on. Um, you don't <laughs> want someone who's obsessed about you. I mean, that's yeah. borderline. And But yeah. I use the word obsessed in the in the sense that, you know, when something's rolling around in the back of your mind, when you're really passionate about something, it just, it doesn't go away. It just sits there. You and so I use it, it more. You can't get it out of your head. So it's, it's more just this constant like thing rolling around in the back of my mind. So the three obsessions. I often like to think about the example, like if, if we'd, we'd never had a conversation before and I, I showed up to your door at your home, somehow managed to track down where you lived and I just knock on your door, you answer the door and I say, hey, come jump in the car. What's your response? Are you getting in the car with me? You seem like a friendly guy, but. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe with you, Shane, we've spent 29 minutes online together. Maybe I would. Maybe. But, but in, in most in, cases, in book, probably you paint not. that. As a complete stranger, and I think it was a really great <laughs> analogy the way you painted that. Yeah. So, I mean, most people aren't getting to, into the car with you, right? Because the first question they want to know was, well, who are you, right? And then they want to know, well, where are we going? So, where are you going to take me? And then along the way, they want to know, okay, do you know how to drive a car? But if I just come up to you and said, hey, I'm a really good driver, you should get in the car with me. People don't get in the car because you're a good driver. They get in the car because they trust you and they want to know that you're taking them somewhere valuable. So I think the three obsessions really sit around this place of, well, who are you, which I describe as the obsession to positioning. You know, what what do you have to say in a way that's impactful for me, which is really about where are we going? And I'd say that's really an obsession around messaging. And the last piece is, are you actually any good at this? Do you know how to drive? And that's really the obsession around developing, which is that consistent commitment to improvement. During your book, you you told a really nice story about a keynote speech where the speaker had the audience in the palm of her hands. She mm-hmm. they lined up afterwards to to talk to her and and get her time and get to know her a little more. During her time speaking, the audience was just jaw dropped, leaning forward in their seats. Yet technically, she wasn't that great a public speaker. And I think you said at the same event, someone else came out who was the exact opposite, a really technically great public speaker. Their slides were polished. They knew where to put their hands. They used their voice to emphasize. They were really well-practiced, needed no notes, all of that kind of stuff. The audience was okay with it because they they could Mm. see that there was a polished performer in front of them, but they certainly weren't leaning forward in their seats. They weren't eating out of the palm of the hand of this person. What's the difference Mm. between those two speakers and how does that sit with your three obsessions? Yeah, they definitely weren't lining up to speak to the person afterwards. And I even, I just have finished a couple of days at a conference and had another experience where a person was delivering a keynote and it was her first time speaking outside the organization. 
And she delivered this raw, authentic, powerful keynote that was so unpolished. It had, it was definitely not what I would say a technical presentation, but it was the talk of the conference. And I think there's a big difference between who people see that you are and people and who people can relate to and connect with versus just being and looking the part. Um, Mm. And I think that it's really about how do we not just go out there and just do everything right, but still get it wrong. And so, yeah, it's, it's that sense of authenticity as well. So is that to say that you can't be a polished, well-rehearsed professional speaker and not get the audience eating out of the palm of your hand? No, I think it's not either or. It's really both end. You can be a really good yeah. and polished and professional speaker, but at the same time, people I often say people get inspired by your success and your achievements, but they connect yeah. through your vulnerability. And so it's about, yes, you can be really great. You could be energetic and people get inspired by that. But what they really connect to is when you actually let down the wall a little bit and say, hey, this is maybe where I haven't got it right. Or, you know, it's maybe a little bit unpolished and and a little bit not not perfect. All right. Let's talk through these three obsessions, positioning, messaging, and developing. You say that positioning is the who you are and what you say. Tell us about the who you are thing. What, how do I convince this audience? Or how do I let them know who I really am? And why is that important if I'm just speaking to them for 30 minutes? Yeah, I often describe the word positioning. Positioning has this origins in this kind of word panere, which kind of means to place something. And I think positioning is really about how we place somebody in our mind. And so when you think about, you know, as a leader, Ask yourself the question, what do my, what words come to mind in my team when they hear my name? I often say a good litmus test is when you see one of your team out for lunch and they haven't yet seen you, give them a call and see what their face does when they see your name pop up on oh, the screen. That's horrible. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> it gives you a bit of an indication of how you placed in their mind, right? Because you can see how I remember speaking at a conference a few years ago and a person was about to get up and speak on on leadership and my phone started going off in my pocket and there was a handful of people at the conference started posting news articles of this person who was going through, you know, a whole lot of legal proceedings around bullying. And in a moment, I often say reputation speaks before you do. So before he's uh, even opened his mouth to speak, already there's this kind of reputation, which is kind of Mm. undermining it. So positioning is really important. And I think that there's kind of four key elements to that. I think there's the elements that are backstage, right? And they're the things that we're the only ones who see. Nobody else sees it. And I think that is really around character. I think that's the thing that we see that nobody else sees. Mm. But I think character front stage is what other people see. And what other people see is credibility. And do they say, is this a credible leader? Then I think there's other things about maybe what we say. And then there's things that we say, and I think that's our narrative, which is who do I say that I want to be? How do I want to be known? And then the front stage of that is really around reputation, which is what other people say about me. And I think Mm. those four things together, working in conjunction, really create this positioning of who am I, what am I about, how do people know me, and what are they saying about me? And how does that interact with what you say to form this positioning piece? What What is the relationship between who I am and what actually comes out of my mouth? I mean, you know, I can, I can see where it's leading, but I'd really like to hear mm. you bring it together for me. Yeah, well, I think character and credibility is really about who I see that I am and who people see that I am. And narrative and reputation is really about what people say that I am and what I say that I am. So it's that integration between who you are and what you're, what you say and what you're about. So the conversations we're having, it's kind of like if I'm walking down the hallways 
and I'm, you know, rallying my team together and go, hey, we're going to talk, we're going to have, pull a meeting together and we're launching a new policy to make sure that we're protecting people from workplace bullying. But everybody has already seen me and interacted with me as a workplace bully. Everything <laughs> that I've done is undermining everything I'm about to say. So who I am is undermining everything that I'm about to actually deliver. So it's about the who and the what interact together. And sometimes the what can be undermined by the who. All right, great. Now, I love the way you wrap that up. That was brilliant. So the positioning is about the who you are and what you say. The second obsession is messaging, and that's about what you say and how you say it. Explain that one. Yeah, I think our world has so much access to information, right? I mean, we've got podcasts, we've got newspapers, we've got magazines, we've got all this noise kind of bombarding us every day, and then we show up to work and our email doesn't stop. We've got meetings after meeting. And so we're bombarded with information, right? And so the challenge is how do we not just say something, but actually have something valuable to say? So when I'm saying something, is it cutting through the noise? Is my message being clear or am I just adding to the clutter that uh, is in people's lives? And that's, so that's messaging the second. What about the third, developing? This is how you say it and who you are. Yeah, because I think every time we show no, up, this is to developing. Speak, I'm sorry, not messaging. I'm sorry. This is developing. This is yeah, no, developing. developing. Yeah, yeah, developing is. I think every time we show up somewhere, we're there, right? So every time we're on stage, we can't separate, you know, what we're saying, how we're saying it, with actually who we are. And so every time we're on stage speaking, it's an opportunity to develop and grow. And so I often say, you know, we need to get better at failing because if we're not good at failing, we're not going to keep doing it. We're not going to keep developing. We're not going to keep growing. We need to get control over our thinking because if we're not thinking right, again, we, it can be create this self-fulfilling prophecy. And so we get caught up on the ways, you know, the way we do things. The same way we need to get better at investing in our skills and sharpening our skills because otherwise we're going to maybe be trusted. Yes, we might have something to say, but it's missing the mark because it's not connecting because we haven't practiced and invested in actually developing our skills and getting better at those. So Shane, you're a professional speaker. You run conferences and workshops. You've written a book on communication and you've just talked about failing and learning from that. Tell me about the first clunker that comes to mind when you think about your own experiences speaking to an audience. Uh, I, I, there's always one that I go to and it was, it was one of my earliest speaking engagements that I can remember. And it was speaking to high school students. And I think if you're going to really test, if you're going to test your ability as a speaker, definitely don't start with high school students, Um, (laughs) start with adults and then work your way up to dealing with high school students. But I remember talking to high school students and thinking to myself, okay, I've got to make it relevant, got to make it engaging. So I grabbed like a movie. And I thought, I'll show some clips from a movie and I'll get them engaged. And we kind of had popcorn there for them. I thought, this is going to be really fun. I started showing a clip of the movie and I paused it to kind of talk a little bit about the movie and talk about kind of, you know, bring out a life lesson from it. And kids started booing and they're like, play the movie, play the movie. (laughs) And I should not have- Play the movie. We don't want to hear you, right? And so I shouldn't have given them popcorn because about halfway through, kids started throwing popcorn at me. And I was like, let's just wrap this up. So I pushed play on the movie. I basically let the kids for the rest of the class watch a movie. And I just kind of went down the back and went, I'm never speaking in public again. (laughs) That is a massive (laughs) fail. You know, you say don't start with high school kids as your audience. That is exactly where I started, Shane. So I was a high school English teacher in my very first career. So straight out of university, I was about 12, I think, maybe 22, but I felt about 12. 
And I've, found, I've one day found myself standing in a classroom, all of my own, completely unsupervised, and they were my responsibility. And I felt barely older than they were. It is a tough initiation, but as I've said many times on this podcast, especially back in episode 100 where I was the guest and someone else interviewed me, I talked about that hard skill that teachers have that they've learned over six hours a day, day in, day out, of trying to entertain and engage the toughest audience in the world. I couldn't agree more. It's like when you get your license for the first time and you get in your car and you drive without somebody, you go, I should not yeah, be allowed on that the road. <laughs> but but yeah. over time, you spend time driving and now you, it's second nature to you, right? And again, I think what you just touched on is beautiful in the sense that the very first few times going to feel clunky. You're going to feel out of your depth. You're going to feel like I shouldn't be here. I often say to people, practice makes progress. It's not about practice makes perfect. It's about, hey, everything you do, practice makes progress. Hey, that video story you told just reminded me of something that I saw a million years ago in a colleague's classroom. She had a prac teacher and this, this kid was getting up, you know, probably second year of uni, probably nervous as all hell trying to engage the classroom. So what this guy did inexplicably was he started his lesson, which was a math lesson, with the song of the time, which was that How Bizarre. Remember that song, How Bizarre, <laughs> yeah. How Bizarre? It had nothing to do with the lesson. He just thought he would play this song and it would magically <laughs> connect him with the kids. And then he's like, press stop. And he's like, okay, now let's do some maths. At least you, in your clunker, tried to create a link between the movie and, and the content you were, you were sharing. It was a very loose link. I'm not sure if it was. I, I did my best. It was one you of my were just first keynotes. The kids. I was. All I right, was now, I, yeah, no, I was, I, was, I was definitely, in hindsight, wouldn't give them popcorn again. <laughs> that is bribery. All right. Now, before we sign off, Shane, you, you work with a lot of people. Through this conversation, some of our listeners are sitting here. They know that they want to get better. They want to be this awesome, engaging leader. And they know that communication is one of the really key ways they can do that. What are your top tips. I mean, without diagnosing the people who are listening, just from your experience, what are a couple, say three, a handful of things that we can keep front of mind and continually assess ourselves against? Yeah. I would say the big one would be sitting around that idea of messaging. And I think the first thing to always ask yourself is, do I have something really valuable to hear, valuable here to say? And so ask yourself, we often want to give people solutions or we want to give people answers or we want to relieve tension for people. And I think the better question here is actually what are people's problems and what questions are they asking and what friction is there? And once we understand that, I think what you touched on is we can have empathy with the people that we're communicating with before we go and give solutions, before we go and give answers. So ask yourself, do I have something valuable here to say? Then ask yourself, rather than getting caught up in all the things you could say, ask yourself, what's the one thing in this moment that I must say? I think we often are very time poor and time scarce. And so we want to try and leverage all of our face-to-face -face time with people to get as much across as we can. And the danger of that is- They're we, not listening we give, to it all. They're not listening. And we give them so many things to walk away and think about yeah. that they end up taking nothing away. So I'd say, well, ask yourself, what's the one thing, this kind of uh, the success factor, if, if I achieve nothing else today, what's the one thing that's really important and really make sure that's intentional? And then the third thing is make sure every time you give people something, an idea, give them something practical that they can do with it, something they can take away and use that can kind of create some momentum for creating real change. Oh, Shane, that is absolute solid gold to end our conversation on. Shane Hatton, thank you so much for your time this evening. I've really enjoyed our conversation. 
Thank you so much. And that was Shane Hatton. I love the concept of process and practice, those two powerful disciplines that can help us break down any skill, any mountain, into palatable, obtainable chunks. And equally, I'm passionate about the concept of leading the room, using every chance we get to speak, no matter how small or large the audience, to enhance our leadership credentials. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Shane on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.